The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. The biggest growth moment in my own career happened at my last job. I brought an idea for a story to an editor. It was one I was really excited about. He took it from me and assigned it to someone else, an older man, someone he thought would do a better job. You might have heard me talk about this before because it was a big deal to me, a learning moment. Everything that's happened in my career since then has been influenced by this. At the time, I was so crushed, so angry. I was in a peer support group of about a dozen people. So I asked him for advice. And the guys, they suggested that I confront the editor, that I demand his respect. But as I listened to him, I just knew this was not going to work for me, that the guy would just think I was hard to work with. The women in the group suggested that instead I suck up my ego, appeal to him to please give me the story back, and try in the process if I could to make him think that it was kind of his idea all along. And that? Well, that worked. Career guides are full of tips to help people get ahead at work. But most of those tips are still written by and for white men. Different people need different strategies. And you may be incensed by this. I often am. You may want to fight the system. But today's guest believes you can also use this knowledge to your advantage. Cynthia Pong is a feminist career strategist. And she's just written this book called Don't Stay in Your Lane. It's a career guide for people of color. In this conversation we're about to have, it's for everyone. Because adapting to the room that you're in, managing the situation that you're handed, not the one that you wish you had, well, that's something we all have to deal with. Here's Cynthia. We hear and receive a lot from media or different career experts that there is some predetermined destiny or calling for you in your career and you have to like go out and find it like a needle in a haystack. And the reason I think on a very pragmatic level that that's problematic sometimes is because it's a lot of pressure, you know, like to think, especially when you are starting out, all these big, huge questions about what you are supposed to do and all the impact and, you know, which isn't to say that you shouldn't think about those things when you can, but in the beginning, you really don't know. Like you need to do a lot of experimentation in your career before you can find out what's the best fit for you. Yeah, I think for for a lot of us who are in the workforce now, uh, we grew up, if you grew up in the United States, at a cultural moment where what we told young people as they went to college was do what you love. Go find a thing that you love. Surely you'll discover it if you don't know what it already. And then get a job that lets you do the thing. And in some ways, I think that's actually a disservice. Agreed. Yeah, I 100% think that too, because um, one, it sort of glorifies work in a weird way. This is going to sound strange because I, I spend all my time working with people about their career and work life, but that's not all there is to our lives. We are human beings outside of what we do for labor and what we have to do to support ourselves within a system of capitalism. So I never want people to feel like they're reduced 
to to the work thing and and that there must be full overlap or maximum overlap between what you love and what you do to earn money to support you and your loved ones. That's a that's a tall order. So how would you summarize what you do? I specialize in working with women of color um, in in a couple of different areas. What I would say that I'm very good at is being a practical problem solver for them. So I'm really good at kind of observing and witnessing what they're telling me about their career, their business, uh, their leadership goals, whatnot, and then trying to help them get to those goals effectively, efficiently, uh, faster, you know, without giving up other things that are important to them, like their life, their children, their side interests, their creativity. Can you explain to us why women of color have specific and maybe articulated in a different way needs around thinking about these things? We all exist within bigger systems of oppression in the world, which totally seeps into and pervades the workplace, virtual or not. Uh, And those systems include racism and sexism and a lot of other forms of oppression, obviously. Um, So the positioning of women of color within the workplace is, is different from that of white folks, white women, um, even men of color, because they face that duality um, of the racism plus sexism, which manifests in different ways also for like different groups of women of color. That, that all is to say there's a, there's a particular need that I saw it wasn't really being fulfilled or addressed so much in the career space. But the way I got into it was like way less cerebral than that. I basically just looked at who was coming to me for help and support in their career and who I enjoyed working with the most and who I actually was the most effective in working with because I would like hit a flow, like hit flow and um, hit a groove with working with them. And that was always women of color. So then I was like, oh, there's something here. Cynthia has personal insight into this because she's a woman of color. And also because she's had to figure this out for herself. Her first career was as a lawyer, more specifically a public defender. But work was all-consuming. About halfway through her six years of practice, she started burning out. She couldn't leave work at work. She felt like she was always on duty. It affected her physically. Eventually, she started to feel like she wasn't doing the job in a way she was proud of. She needed to make a change. As you look back, Do you think, oh, shoot, I made a mistake? Or do you think, oh, I'm just kind of done with this? I definitely don't have any regrets about how my career went. I I think that I'm equally sort of proud of that time and like grateful that I had that time and did, did the work I was able to. And that now I also have a chance, which is a great privilege to be able to have like a second career, basically, and do something else. I haven't discounted the idea of like a third and a fourth too, but um, I don't. I don't regret it, but I recognize that what happened is what happened. And so what happened next? I put in for an unpaid sabbatical, which I was very lucky to have because I was part of a unionized uh, workforce. So I tried to take the pressure off for that first set of weeks, and I really took care of myself and did things that I had put off for a long time for my own personal development. Then after that, like about you know, 90 days in or so, I started thinking about, oh, what what might I want to do next? And at this point, how are you paying the rent or the equivalent thereof? 
I applied for my sabbatical 10 months in advance. So I knew it was coming. In that time, I started to more aggressively save money from my paycheck. I also cashed out all the vacation I had saved for my job. So actually, it was as if the first month of my sabbatical, I was still working. I had that much vacation built up. I also, a couple months in, like after my savings were going down, um, I got a part-time job at a farmer's market. I loved that job and it provided me with, you know, some income so that I could, I could not be so anxious about what I was doing in terms of building my business at that point. Uh, the last thing I'll say is like the things that I did do for my personal development, like right after I started my sabbatical, which were like take a Spanish class, take a woodworking class, take a carpentry class. I paid for all those ahead of time while I was still drawing a salary as a public defender. So I didn't feel that extra like pain of, of those expenditures after I wasn't bringing any money in. Um, and there's the tension, of course, of not bringing any money in because you practically need to pay for things. But then there's also the tension because we are ambitious adults in a capitalist society that drills into us that we should be productive and producing. How did you address that? I did a lot of journaling in that time to deal with like my negative thoughts and feelings of like, you know, it's it's very easy for us, uh, especially as women, especially as women of color to equate our value in life with our earning potential. I did a lot of uh, introspection around like my worth is not what I can bring in like in dollars. Like that's a lie that society has told me and I actively refused to buy into it, like literally refused to buy into it. Uh, and it was hard, you know, it's a process. Uh, it's still in flux for me like all the time um, because I do think that there is something really powerful in women and women of color, like making a ton of money, you know, for themselves to use however they want. So how did you get to the next thing to try that you thought maybe could be a career for you? Right. So the first thing was I got into my head that I wanted to work for myself. So that following fall, I applied for like an LLC, you know, and the first iteration of my business was I was going to try to work with nonprofits and social justice organizations to be better workplaces for their employees. It's <laughs> a lot of hubris there. Well, I mean, that's a lot different than what you're doing now. So it's really interesting to hear where you started and then see where you ended up. So did you did you try that for a while? I did. It did not work. I gave it six months, I think. I tried it. You know, I, I pitched, I created marketing materials. I started a basic website. I wrote about burnout and nonprofits and how they could improve their employee satisfaction. I was really going for it for a while, Jesse. But the the feedback that I got <laughs> was not what I expected. And that was for the most part, like crickets and no's. Uh, I had to work so hard. I never anticipated that in business as an entrepreneur, I would have to work so hard to get work. Um, so that was a wake up call. Uh, and after four to six months of that not working, I was like, okay, I really need to close that chapter and try something else. And luckily, because of my work with my therapist uh, and business coach, like she gave me the idea partway to do a training for lawyers on mindfulness. For lawyers, there's these continuing legal education requirements. Like you, you have to get so many hours in a year. Uh, and so she was like, why don't you just teach one of those and it'll get you in front of hundreds or so of lawyers and they could all be like potential clients to bring you in. 
wait, time out here. Was mindfulness something that you knew anything about at that point? My therapist had tried to get me to adopt the tenets of mindfulness from like way long ago, but it took me like a solid year to get around to it. As I was on my sabbatical and stuff, like I was deepening my mindfulness practice. So I was like, this is the only thing I will consider teaching. And so that's how it ended up being a mindfulness topic. Again, this was not like a predetermined plan. <laughs> and so you taught that and what did it teach you? Yeah, it taught me that there was demand in the market for this. So I pivoted. That was kind of my 2.0 of my business. I was going to do mindfulness trainings for both nonprofits and for-profit organizations. So I expanded my offerings. I, I took that training around and it worked a lot better than the first version of my business, but I still found it was incredibly lacking and I, my heart really wasn't in it. So it sounds to me a little bit like you, you were sort of nudging your way into what the market was willing to pay for, but then you just didn't actually like it that much. Is that something that you see a lot of people struggle with as they come to talk to you? Yeah, to an extent. What I think is actually more common, though, is not wanting to listen to what the market is telling you. So being tied to your idea of what is going to work and then not being able to understand that it actually might not be what people want from you. That's what I, I think is more often the block for a lot of my clients. We get tied to these ideas in our head and it's really hard to let those go sometimes. When you're working with clients, what are the questions that they come to you with more most frequently? A lot of it is the figuring out what are my next steps because I hate my career right now. And then I would say the second most common or maybe equally is women of color who are in those leadership roles or like starting to break into those leadership roles or already in the executive roles. And they are trying to really have to make space for themselves within a structure that's already dominated by white men. So that's a lot to do with self-advocacy and negotiation, dealing with complicated uh, interpersonal relationships and a lot of politics in the workplace. That's another very common one. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So at one point in my last job, 
I ran into just a huge problem, a, a huge problem I couldn't solve, big political problem. And I went outside for counsel and I asked uh, a dinner group that I'm a part of, a, a young professionals dinner group. And that dinner group was 75% men, uh, 25% women. And um, the men all were like, this is what you need to do to solve it. And they laid out exactly how they would solve it. And in my heart, I knew immediately that I, coming from where I was coming from, I couldn't do any of those things. All of those things would just incite the people around me and it would, it would turn bad quickly. And in fact, the, the women in the group, they said, actually, here's, here's maybe what will work for you. You need to, in this case, you need to manage up. You need to make them think that it's their idea. Like, that's how you're going to achieve this. Put aside how you feel about that difference. That's how you're going to achieve what you want. And so I just wanted to hear from your perspective a little bit about how women of color achieve what they want when it comes to navigating the workplace. I love that example that you just shared because it really sums up the situation that we find ourselves in. And I think it applies to women in general, applies to white women, it applies in a slightly different way to women of color. But there's a lot of stuff out there that is also like, oh, just act like a mediocre white man. You know, just adopt the confidence of a mediocre white man and everything will be roses. Untrue. There is going to be backlash for you that white men are not going to get. If we want to be smart and strategic about this, we have to understand that and be able to navigate around it. So a lot of the stuff that I do talk about either with clients or like in posts on Instagram and stuff is like subverting stereotype bias against you. Let's take an example of negotiation. So if you're trying to negotiate something, a promotion, a raise, what have you, as a woman in general, you have to take into account that we are seen and expected to be communal. So we're expected to put other people's interests ahead of ourselves, to take care of the team, to have the mission and organization in mind, even when we're talking about things that we want. So if you want to maximize your chances of success, with, let's say, white men who are going to make the decision in this negotiation and who you think like are affected by this stereotype bias, like they see you as someone who should put other people's needs in front of yours, then what you should probably do is counter negotiation in terms of that. Like, oh, you know, I would like to be a better asset to the team. And I would like to do that in this way. What do you think? You know, like, stuff like that so that you're framing it within the stereotype bias. Some women have a knee-jerk negative reaction to that because it feels like we are internalizing that uh, stereotype about us putting other people's needs first. But I see it more as dealing with the reality in which we live and finding a way around it to ultimately get what we want. So to me, it's a bit subversive. I love that example. And I I hear that tension. You are in that way reproducing the institutionalized forces that are keeping you out. At the same time, this is the game we're playing. Yeah. Why shouldn't we play to win if it's the only game we get to play? That's deep. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I struggle with it for myself, for sure. And, um, and I come into it already with like loads of privilege, the privilege of my educational background, the privilege of the color of my skin. Same. Okay. So that's a, that's a great negotiation technique. Like what else helps us in negotiation? Oh, deep listening. 
and that's something we're already like super socialized to do as women and women of color. So that that's a, a plus. You really want to listen and between the lines too to pick up use the those uh you know the EQ, the emotional intelligence that you already have. And trust me, you do have it. I know I don't know all of you listeners, but I know you have it because like to have survived this far in your life, you've had to manage a lot of dynamics in the home, in your communities at work. So you have it. Um, Paying attention to like, what does the other person actually want? What do they care about? What are their goals and motives? And to find the overlap between that and what you want. Because that's the place that you're going to really maximize and expand so that you get what you want uh, because you convince them to uh, give it to you or to at least not be in your way (laughs) for you to get it. Yeah, that's a, it's a good one. So you said that often, like your sweet spot is working with women who are just so fed up. And when you're that fed up, it's really hard to roll out these tips and strategies, which take a great deal of compassion for yourself and for the people you work with and patience. So how do you help people get from um, anger to compassion? I think about this a lot in terms of job search. Like we are in month five or six of the pandemic and the economic fallout after that, which has hit women of color extra hard. You know, Black women have not actually gained back, um, bounced back from like the loss of jobs in the way that other groups have. So it is especially difficult for a lot of Black women who've just been on the market, on the job market for a long, long time. But so like when you think about like, oh my God, like I've applied to so many jobs and I just keep getting rejections. And like, all I see are just more job applications like in front of me, like that is very demoralizing. Like there's a lot of negative emotions tied up with that. You know, fear, dread, anger, uh, all those things. But if we don't find a way to either actively address those all the time, which is tiring in and of itself and work, um, or compartmentalizing them for the time that we have to do what we need to do, then we're not going to be able to continue putting out quality applications, for example, getting excited about networking and making connections and interviewing and stuff, all of which we need to do if we want to get that next job, for example. So sometimes my work with people is doing the work of like unpacking all the emotions and stuff, but although that's really more of therapy, to be honest, some of it is getting them to separate their emotional entanglement with a thing and the thing itself, and to really focus on doing the applications, making sure they're high quality, um, looking at being proud of everything they've accomplished, even in a time when they might feel like a quote unquote failure, because that's that's really what we have to do right now to like continue going. And then also like the self-care along the way. For women of color who want to get ahead, is it a better idea to step out of existing systems and create something on your own? Part of me does think like if a particular institution or set of leaders or organization isn't treating you well, like one way to say no to that is to leave. And I do see increasingly women of color creating our own spaces, our own businesses, our own models of existing outside of these systems. I think both have to happen and both realistically will happen, to be honest, because not everybody can remove themselves uh, because of things you were talking about earlier, like got to pay the bills. I don't want to glorify entrepreneurship either as like 
a panacea. But I think both things can be happening at the same time, like us creating more of our own spaces uh, outside of institutions that are rife with racism and sexism. Also, I think we need to be uh, continuing to support and push women of color up in organizations and not in a tokenistic way, you know, and not in a way that's set up to fail. It can't be a glass cliff scenario. Have you heard of that? Explain for our listeners what a glass cliff is. Take a lot of these like Fortune 500 companies, like if they're in a total disaster situation, I'm talking full on dumpster fire. A lot of times they'll get rid of the man that was the CEO and then put in a woman. Usually it's a white woman to quote unquote clean up the mess. Uh, And then when that white woman isn't able to clean up the mess because it was a trap to begin with, you know, then they can say things like, oh, we tried, you know, we tried putting a woman at the top. She didn't work out. And then that's like an excuse to go back to the status quo of putting another white man in charge. And then even worse than that is that white woman has trouble finding employment at other companies because then she has the like specter of this, this corporate failure, like on her record. It's terrible. And the reason I should say that's called a glass cliff, you know, it's like the glass ceiling thing, right? But so it's a glass cliff because you're promoted to this high level, but it's a very, very, very narrow ledge that you're on. And it's like one wrong step and you fall. Yeah. How do we go back to the people we work with and the places we work, particularly when they're in environments that don't feel supportive and and begin to find the way to be productive for ourselves. I do believe in the power of support and community. And I say this as an introvert. So community to me could even mean two people, you know, and maybe you find that in the workplace if you look for allies in different pockets in that workplace, or maybe you don't. It might have to be external. And there's been writing on this too, about how like women who go far in their careers, their systems of support is different from that of men. You know, men have like a super broad network or whatever, and it works for them. But for women, like you have to have a broad network, but you also need to have a small community of very supportive and goals aligned other women to help you because then you all sort of strategize together. You pass the opportunities to each other like that. So one is, is finding that support. Two is ask yourself first too, like, do you need a break? <laughs> Do you need a mental health leave? Do you need to emotionally detach a little bit from what's going on? Because it's we don't want you to continue to enable yourself in this churn and burn kind of situation. So if you need to take a time out, like please find a way to make that happen for yourself. And then, you know, when you're feeling like you have the bandwidth for it, work with other people. If you're so mired in all this negativity and toxicity and stuff, you need someone else who can really help you along the way, at least one other person. Hey, so if you are considering uh, taking a job and you're trying to determine whether the culture that you're walking into is going to be a culture where you're going to find allies and flourish, are there any small hacks to getting that right, things you look for going in the door? We can never really know what something is like until we've been in it. So don't hold yourself up to a super high standard as to have to like fully investigate uh, a, a particular organization before you go in. Yeah, do your due diligence, but you don't don't expect yourself to be able to anticipate what it will really be like because there's no way you could know. Is there anything that you can point to where you can be like that company is going to be an okay place? I would definitely look for 
diversity amongst the top leadership and or at least like within the team that you're going to be going into and more than the token one or two, which may be really hard to find, to be honest. But like, you know, look at the people and look at their bios. What does that tell you? Do they have any sort of track record of caring about employee retention, uh, the needs of people of color and women of color, uh, you know, family leave, like any of that stuff? Like, does it look like they are a, a workplace that would be friendly to someone who, who is like you and cares about the things that you do? So I, I would look for that, you know, not just the headshots of the leadership to see who they have up there but also do this kind of research and lean on what other people have said. Uh, well said. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground together, Cynthia. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Last question. What's your next career? Oh, <laughs> I know I joked about that. I don't have active plans for anything because right now I'm really enjoying what I have going on now and the, the ability I have to create a mix of work that I really enjoy and suits me as an introverted woman of color. Um, but part of me is like, oh, if I wasn't doing this, like, I really like geology <laughs> and I like parks. So I wonder if I would ever be like a park ranger at a national park or something. It would be um, totally different from what I do now in the middle of New York City. <laughs> that was Cynthia Pong. You can check out her work and grab a copy of her book, Don't Stay in Your Lane, on the web at embracechange.nyc. Or come talk to her yourself at this week's Office Hours. She'll join me and producer Sarah Storm for our weekly Wednesday coffee break. We'll go live, as usual, at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll take your questions and chat with each other. To join us, follow me on LinkedIn or email us for the link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. That's hellomonday at linkedin.com. Now, if you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe Georgie mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor and Juliette Ferro are climbing their own career ladders with us. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. I also was delighted to discover that you went to Brown before me, and I loved the detail that you you stuck into the book, that your, your reason for wanting to do the early program was because you wanted to get the best bed in your dorm. Which dorm were you in? I was in Keeney. They're symmetrical rooms. My dad was like, yeah, go early so you can pick the side of the symmetrical room that you want. And that's why that happened. Yeah. Yeah.